I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. The word Pacific is defined in Webster's Dictionary as tending to lessen conflict, conciliatory, mild of temper. The ocean of that name has already seen the extreme opposite in the huge Pacific theater of the Second World War. The fight then, of course, was between the U.S. and Imperial Japan. Today, America is in the thick of a fast-growing war of another 21st century sort, this time with China. On the edges of the headlines is the growing conflict between Washington and Beijing. In his well-researched recent article on Tom Dispatch, Professor Emeritus Michael Clare makes it clear that both countries are plunging into a new kind of war. In an article titled War with China, it's already underway. Michael Clare Tom Dispatch Regular is the five-college professor emeritus of peace and world security studies at Hampshire College and your senior visiting fellow at the Arms Control Association. His most recent book is The Race for What's Left. His next book, All Hell Breaking Loose, Climate Change, Global Chaos, and American National Security, will be published this year. Thanks so much for being with us, uh, Michael Clare. Okay, my pleasure. So far, the war with China is not yet a hot shooting war. So far. (laughs) As you write, for all intents and purposes, the United States and China are already at war with one another. Even if their present slow-burn conflict may not produce the immediate devastation of a conventional hot war, its long-term consequences could prove no less dire. In what way? How? Okay, well, this is a war that's being fought on many fronts, in cyberspace, in trade, in economics, in technology, science and technology, in geopolitics, in support for proxies around the world. So it is a war that is underway today. It's a very costly war. The Department of Defense wants to spend hundreds of billions of dollars, trillions of dollars, over the next 25 years to ensure that the United States will retain military superiority over China forever. I mean, you know, as far as we could see into the future, that's a price tag that's going to ensure that we will not have enough money in this country to upgrade our infrastructure, to educate our children, and especially to address the threat of climate change. Yes. So in the end, our country will be bled to death to support this endless war preparation for a conflict with China. And that's just getting started. Sure. That, that's to give you an idea. Yeah, it isn't easy. It's something people haven't really been paying attention to with all the uh, Trump stuff and the Democratic race. War with China? What? Nobody's really paying attention to that. Interesting you say... 
must something like must retain military superiority into the foreseeable future. I I don't I mean <laughs> how can there've been empires that have demanded military superiority over the globe and it doesn't turn out well ever for them. It's amazing how uh, we used to, we, we don't, we just don't get that. And I, I don't understand why we don't, well, I do understand it's profitable. The definition of war, of the word war used to be pretty clear. Today, you write, today, war means so much more than military combat. How might the oh-so-cordial dinner at Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort between President Trump and Xi Jinping fit under a new 21st century definition of war. How is it, as you say, combat by another name? It looks so nice. (laughs) Well, uh, let's take, for example, the uh, current struggle over the future of technology. Uh, The future of technology... uh, for in one dimension is said to be about who is going to dominate the internet of the future and mm-hmm. and that that to be hinge on the who who will who will dominate the field of 5G mm-hmm. internet and wireless communications 5G for fifth generation this is the technology that will power the internet communications in the decades ahead, much faster than what we have today. It'll also make possible the Internet of Things, autonomous cars, self-driving cars, and a lot more. The whole economy of the future is said to hinge around 5G technology. And right now, the leader in that technology is a Chinese company, Huawei, and the U.S. is doing everything in its power to sabotage that drive by Huawei to take the leadership in this field and to ensure that American companies dominate using every every power imaginable, every tool imaginable. For example, putting pressure on Canadian officials to arrest Huawei's chief financial officer, uh, during a stopover in Vancouver and detaining her and now trying to extradite her to the United States, going, sending diplomats around the world to pressure governments in Australia, New Zealand, Poland, Czechoslovakia, France, Britain, Germany, to prevent, to put pressure on them to disallow Huawei, which is the world's leading producer of telecommunications equipment, not to be able to set up shop in their country right now is the world's leading wireless telecommunications convention ever occurring. It's in every year. It's in Barcelona, and the U.S. sent a team of diplomats there to try to persuade foreign governments not to use Huawei technology. This is the sort of thing that we don't, unless you read the back pages of the business pages of the newspapers, you're not aware that our diplomats are in this global war to try to prevent Chinese companies from securing leadership in a key area of technology. But that's what the war, the technology war of the 21st century is all about. That's an example. Interesting how (laughs) the uh, people who most uh, uh, trumpet uh, free market, yeah, capitalism, let the free market reign. (laughs) They're doing just the opposite. You know, theoretically, in 
capitalism, if you have a better product, it sells more stuff. And this is so counter to what the alleged conservatives claim to believe in. Let me ask you about Huawei. Uh, what what is it about? Is is it, so our government is trying to sabotage them, and sabotage is certainly has always been a key part of war. Are they in the business of stealing military secrets? How much of a threat to our national security is Huawei, or is it just we want to beat them? You know, I, I think every company, including Huawei, uh, it uses whatever means it can to acquire a technological edge. To what degree Huawei engaged in criminal behavior, I have no idea. Uh, but I'm prepared to believe that that company, like every company, uh, like American oil companies, engage in illicit behavior in their struggle for dominance. So that's that's not a, probably not in question. But that's not what this is about. That's not what the U.S. is saying. Uh, what U.S. leaders are saying is very clear that in the struggle for global dominance in the 21st century, technology is central, is pivotal. Whoever dominates the technologies of the future will be the dominant power of our time. And this is not new either. When, when, uh, when oil became the dominant means of power, the yeah. U.S. sought to dominate it. In, in past civilizations have always sought to dominate the leading technologies of their time. Today, the leading technologies are artificial intelligence, cyber, and hypersonic weapons, and the kind of wireless technology that Huawei represents. Chinese leaders understand that this is essential for China to rise from a middle-income country to a major economy equivalent to the United States. American leaders, what uh, Ben Rhodes, the former uh, advisor to, to President Obama, calls the blob, the foreign policy elite in Washington no. are absolutely determined to prevent China from ever reaching equality, economic and technological equality with the United States. Hence, the U.S. has to go to this kind of economic technological war to prevent China from achieving that status. So it's if I'm hearing you right, it's not like the old model of the other guys stealing military secrets. I mean, I guess each country tries to do that. Is is that not the concern about Huawei? It's just that we want to beat them because we want to be the biggest? Yes, uh, <laughs> it's absolutely clear. Every country steals military secrets, sure. probably China more than others. I, I, I don't doubt that. And I, I think that the U.S. is right to seek protection against that kind of theft. Uh, but... M m Many of the technologies the U.S. now is dominant in were, were once uh, stolen from other countries. Uh -huh. So th this is n not a new practice in international affairs. And I'm, I'm sure China is doing it, and the U.S. is right to seek protection against that. But that's not what this is about. This is about global mastery 
and who's going to control the mm-hmm. dominant technologies of the future. So that's, that's, that's a much bigger issue. This is about right. preventing China from, from being able to train and equip and build a technological capacity equivalent to what we have in Silicon Valley and elsewhere in the United States. I, I wonder in this clearly information age and, and digital age, you know, in, in past wars, there's been a fear of, you know, the Japanese dominating us or the Nazis controlling us and affecting all our lives. I wonder how, if, you know, if China continues to, to move ahead, Huawei and others, uh, is, is this something that would af- possibly affect the average American? Well, now look at the trade war, so-called, which has also been um, heating, has been heated up in recent weeks. Uh, Now, President Trump has said he's going to put a hold to that. I I think it's precisely because average Americans have begun to suffer because we have put so much pressure on China uh, they, like, as in all trade wars, have retaliated. Sure. They've retaliated, for example, against American farmers by not buying American soybeans and other American agricultural products and stop buying, uh, uh, well, I don't know, a whole range of American sure. products. Yeah. And this has hurt American businesses and American farmers and uh, and American citizens. People get hurt in trade wars. Yes. And, and a President Trump uh, at first seemed to be oblivious to this fact. More recently, he seems to have become aware that he's hurting his own base yeah. because it's mainly people in the Rust Midwest, Belt areas yeah. Yeah. and in the agricultural areas that voted for him that are suffering from this. And I think that explains why he now appears eager to end the trade war and, and forge a deal with the Chinese. But what about if, if you know, Huawei and other Chinese companies, you know, simply are way, way ahead in the, in the digital uh, field? Does that, I mean, aside from trade war, which is Trump's, I mean, Trump owns it and clearly is, is hurting and affecting a lot of American people. What about the, the digital war? So what if, if they are the biggest and the best? How, is that something American people should be afraid of or concerned about? I think that Americans should be afraid of any kind of war that has dangerous consequences. And I I, I think we're in a situation where the second biggest economy in the world and a rising military power is in constant, we're, we're in, both of us are in constant confrontation and suspicion with us yeah. and therefore unable to solve world's problem uh, the world's problems right. that's bad for americans right. so i don't think you could separate out one one from the other uh-huh. um, I, I i i think that if china were to do, make breakthroughs for uh, for example in renewable energy uh-huh. which is one of the areas they're focused on that's good for the rest of the world if they make breakthroughs in 
digital technology that that makes our lives better that's good for us as long as it's all everybody abides by the same rules uh-huh. in international trade uh-huh. and you know and yes if if china cheats then they well, they have to be um required to obey by the same rules as everybody else i don't have any question about that but this yeah. not, uh, we we should be in favor of of a, of a world in in which uh every country does the best that it can, and we all benefit from that. What I worry about is that we're not in that world anymore. We're in a world where China's rise is seen as threatening by the United States, and therefore we're building up our military capabilities to go to war with China. And we're in a situation where both sides are constantly testing each other and provoking each other not only in the economic sphere and technological oh, sure. sphere, but in the military Absolutely. sphere. We could be at war with China tomorrow oh, yeah. because we're, both sides are constantly testing each other in naval maneuvers and probing in the South China Sea and no. the East China Sea. And this could explode into a military incident at a moment's notice. This is really insane. Yeah, it's pretty, uh, this this hair trigger stuff is, uh, you know, when we're talking about tossing a few nuclear bombs around, that's a little bit scary. If you just tuned in, dear listener, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Professor Michael Clare, uh, who's written an article for Tom Dispatch called War with China? Question mark. It's already underway. Now, back to the uh, to the trade issue, Um you know, he, he he initiated the trade war with China. Absolutely. He's argued its purpose is to rectify the trade imbalance with China. But you've seen some leaked documents which, as you say, reveal, quote, this should be considered a straightforward declaration of uh, economic war. You cite the words of Eswar Prasad, economics professor at Cornell, who says the list reads like on this leaked document, the list reads like the terms of for a surrender rather than a basis for negotiation. Please, uh, if you could explain the conclusion you've come to and he came to with regard to the real goals of the trade war. Yes, well, these leaked um, and the, and these leaked um, demands by the U.S., which are bandied about on the business pages of the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and other papers almost every day. So there's nothing very um, covert or, or uh-huh. secretive about them. They're, they're in today's New York Times, you could see a discussion of these issues. Uh, the, the U.S. Uh, is demanding that the Chinese government stop subsidizing state-owned companies and other companies to engage in advanced research on artificial intelligence and advanced telecommunications and the like. Um, And at the same time that the U.S. government itself is pouring billions, hundreds of billions of dollars into the same technologies through the Department of Defense. Uh. So it's the the message that I take from that is that it's okay for the U.S. government Mm -hmm. to pour money into U.S. corporations to do this kind of advanced technological research that will advance our prowess in the future, our economic and military prowess, but it's not okay for China to do it. 
And if they do it, we're going to slam them with punitive tariffs that damage their economy. That's what I mean by uh, economic warfare. Gosh, it almost seems like 19th century thinking in the 21st century. It's very much uh, 19th century mercantilist thinking, absolutely. God, what, uh, one thing I've learned from history is that we never learn from history. <laughs> there you go. Russia, the old Soviet Union, of course, used to be the official enemy. It was our principal adversary throughout the 20th century, or at least the second half. It was great for the profits of the military industrial complex. Sure, the Russian support for Trump in the last election is a focus for the mainstream media, but what is the reality of Russia as a global adversary now? China's rising while they're diminishing? What gives there? Well, I find this a very interesting matter uh, because the media, if you go to the front page of the papers and, and the nightly news, you think that Russia is America's primary adversary. Right. And in, in, in some sense, of course, Russia has played a very divisive and destructive, corrosive role by its meddling in the election using cyber weapons. And this has proven to be a very formidable weapon in the Russian arsenal um, very effective, and they're continuing to use it around the world. But in the sense of, if, if you add up all of the instruments of of power, you know, from a classical geopolitical sense of what are the instruments of power, economic, technological, and military, Russia is in deep trouble and is not nearly, is, is nowhere close to being a equal adversary of the United States. Um, its economy is in terrible shape because it's highly dependent on petroleum sales and right. oils and natural gas sales for its economy. And the price of those commodities has dropped in recent years, uh, badly hurting the Russian economy, and they've never diversified very much into other commodities, other other items that they could sell on international markets. So it's a very uh, very 20th century economy. It has not made the leap to the 21st century, economically speaking. Mm -hmm. Secondly, it's, it's under sanctions from the U.S. and from True. the European countries. Oh, and that's yeah. further damaged its economy. Oh. Its military is not nearly the equal of the U.S. or NATO, and is not likely to be there ever, so far as we could tell. So Russia has some cards to play. It's a nuclear power, for sure. Um, it has ties to Syria and a few other countries, but it's not a, not a future adversary on a large scale, it's not going to challenge the United States for world domination. That's not in the cards. No. China, on the other hand, now I, let me let me step back a minute, Bert. For uh, when I'm talking now, this is not Michael Clare talking. This is the perception, I believe, of the blob of the foreign policy <laughs> establishment in Washington. This is the way they think. They think in these grand geopolitical terms. Uh, this is the CIA, the Department of Defense, the 
think tanks, the conservative think tanks in Washington, Democrats and Republicans think this way. So uh, I'm trying to present how that that blob thinks. So they don't (laughs) see Russia as the long-term competitor rival of the U.S. that we have to worry about. They see China as in that role. Because China has an economy that could someday equal that of the United States. They have a very diversified economy that's increasingly technologically sophisticated. And they have the money to spend on their military so that it someday can really challenge the U.S. So from the blob's perspective, Russia is not a significant challenger, whereas China is. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm I surprised I haven't heard the term blob applied to uh, <laughs> large uh, intelligence uh, apparatus before. And you reminded me a long time ago, 1980, I think it was, I interviewed the late Gore Vidal, and he predicted that the 21st century was going to be the Chinese century. Seems he may have been uh, right. Uh, it, I, I, see, this is what it's all about. The blob, the or... I call it the Washington foreign policy establishment. Sure. You could call it whatever you want, uh, the, which has been in power since the end of World War II. Yes. This establishment is determined, is united. Democrats, Republicans together are united on one point. We're never going to allow it to be the Chinese century. Uh. That's what this is all about. That's people have been talking about this being the Chinese century, but the the foreign policy establishment is determined not to let that happen, and that's what this war that I write about is is all about. Wow, interesting. A little bit of macho in there, I suspect, but I'm not a psychologist. E- ever since the demise of the other empires, the U.S. has been quite upfront about aiming for hegemony of the planet. We have something like 800 military bases around the world. We have installed favorable governments everywhere we could. Yet President Trump called nations run by blacks, I hesitate to say this on the air, but he did, shitholes. So forget any favorability in fast-developing Africa. He's, he's, you know, dreadfully insulted them, gleefully picking up from our chance of influence in that huge potential area of development is, of course, China. Not all that many Americans are familiar with China's policies, policy known as Belt and Road. I wonder if you could tell us about what that is, and is it seen by any parties as part of the war between the U.S. and China? Belt and Road. Yes, uh, I think it's useful for your listeners to know about the Belt and Road. Uh, I I don't know where exactly the term originated, but uh, as envisioned by the Chinese, this is a trillion-dollar plan to connect China or the East Asia with with the rest of Eurasia and Africa and the Middle East by an entire new network of rail and sea and pipeline and electrical infrastructure lines. I mean, historically, uh, the Atlantic nations, Europe and the U.S. and and the rest, were connected to Asia by sea, 
and it was the European colonial powers and their mastery of right. sea craft, of ships that allowed them first to colonize and control Africa, and then to go around Africa to India and to the Spice Islands, to 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 uh, uh, the Dutch East Indies, and so on, and eventually to uh, conquer China and Japan. It was sea craft. And until now, uh, the U.S. Navy has been the dominant power in Asia, military power in Asia, and interior communication between East and West has been impossible, uh, with the sole exception, perhaps, of the Trans-Siberian Railroad, that there's been no other link, interior link. What China is doing with its Belt and Road Initiative is to try to um, end the domination of, of sea transportation and sea routes as a means of transport, transporting goods and people from east and west with rail corridors, road corridors, pipelines, transmission lines going across Asia to Europe and down to Africa and the Middle East. Some of it by sea, but a lot of it high speed rail they think of high speed rail going from from beijing to berlin in you know a overnight train ride high speed train but it's mainly for goods and if this scheme were to materialize in all of its forms it would alter completely the historic economic linkages that have dominated the world's economy for the past 500 or so years. So it's a very interesting conception. It would also, of course, uh, the idea is that all roads would lead to yeah, China. Right. It would give China enormous political influence. Oh, wow. So on this ground, on these grounds, the U.S. is trying to do everything it possibly can to undermine the Belt and and road initiative. Well, what about what about Africa? And you, you write that the Belt and Road Initiative, at least part of it, is similar to that of the Marshall Plan that cemented cemented U.S. influence in Europe after the Second World War. We want to frustrate China's geopolitical ambitions, but why, why don't we do what they're doing in Africa, in Central America, in other places, many of which refugees are fleeing from? Could, yes, well, this is a good question because um, because U.S. companies and the U.S. government no longer has the inclination to engage in big infrastructure projects in the rest of the world because they don't generate the kind of profits that American companies are looking for. Hmm. But it could pay off in, you know, a slightly longer run to have allies there. You know, I worked in, in Western Europe, which was so devastated after the Second World War. And, I mean, we we complain, some people complain about the refugees coming you, up. You know, the, the Marshall Plans, most, most of the Marshall Plan was about converting Europe from a coal economy to an oil economy. Ah. That was the <laughs> biggest, you know, long-term consequence economic consequence of the marshall see. plan uh, we forget that but but that is in fact what it did it it converted uh, as the us was being converted from coal to oil we converted europe from coal to oil 
consumption. And guess who was the primary beneficiaries? Let me of think. That? It was U.S. <laughs> oil companies. Texas. It was oil from the Middle East, right? Primarily, and pipelines that U.S. companies built to transmit, transport oil from the Middle East to Europe. That's what the Marshall Plan financed. Yeah, I. I China is doing roughly the same thing with its Belt and Road uh, initiative in Africa. It's building infrastructure, rail and ports and the like, uh, so that uh, the raw materials of Africa Uh will flow now to China, and it'll be beneficial to Chinese consumers. It's less clear to what degree Africans will benefit from all of this. So there has been some Uh resistance in Africa to China's infrastructure projects. Uh, African countries take on a lot of debt to pay for these things. They're usually built by Chinese companies with Chinese laborers, Mm -hmm. so there isn't necessarily the kind of employment benefits that you might have. Uh, so so there's been some backlash against Chinese sure. initiatives in Africa um, that the U.S. is seeking to exploit and trying to undermine the, Afri- the Chinese project. And I would think the U.S. could go in there and try to help them as well. And certainly they have every reason to be sensitive to uh, colonial powers. I mean, you look yeah. at a... But the United States is not offering to do what the Chinese are. It's not like, um, you know, we're saying, oh, uh, we support, we, we, we sympathize with your concerns about uh, the debts that China is loading you with, and we sympathize with the human rights violations that they sometimes engage in. But the U.S. is not saying, um, we'll... We'll give you the ten billion dollars you need to build that railroad and the ten billion dollars you need to build that port. So uh, it's a little bit just like rhetoric, but not, not. There's no beef there. There's no. There's no real deliverables from the United States. And of course, what Trump had to say about those countries. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. Our show is Keeping Democracy Alive. It's a group effort, folks. Our guest today is uh, Professor Michael Clare of uh, Fife College, Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies at Hampshire College and a senior visiting fellow at the Arms Control Association. He's got a new book coming, new book coming out, All Hell Breaking Loose, Climate Change, Global Chaos, and American National Security. And uh, we're talking with him about an article he's written on Tom Dispatch called War with China? It's already underway. Well, India is another fast-growing, or at least in terms of population, world power, which as we speak these words, they may be in a shooting war with their arch-rival Pakistan. China and India have also had tensions over the centuries. You write that India expects that significant technology transfers from American firms will be one outcome of its agreed-upon purchases of advanced American weaponry. What does this mean in the context of the China-U.S. competition? Yeah, uh, the U.S. has been courting India for years to become 
like a military ally of the U.S., a military partner of the U.S. in trying to encircle China. This is not new. You saw that in the Bush administration with Dick Cheney. This was one of his objectives. Uh, And President Obama also favored this kind of strategy, and now the Trump administration is behind it. You know, historically, India was closely tied to the Soviet Union, but sought to be uh, independent in the to some degree in international relations, to play its own cards, you know, to play its own game. The Indian elites uh, don't want to think of themselves as anybody's client or satellite, sure. whereas the U.S. goal is to turn... India into a satellite state in its struggle to contain China's rise. And uh, as part of that, uh, the U.S. has promised India a a lot of military technology in building up its own, India's own military. In the Indians are looking to build a new fleet of jet planes, advanced fighter planes, and the U.S. is offering to build them, uh, to sell them the technology to build these fighter planes in India. This is exactly, of course, the sort of thing that the U.S. condemns uh, the Chinese for doing, for seeking. This is one of the issues in the trade negotiations now underway. They complain that that Chinese companies insist that when American companies invest in China, that that um, the, that American companies provide technological know-how to Chinese companies as part of the deal. And, and now the U.S. trade negotiators are insisting that in a new trade deal, that Chinese companies not be allowed to do that. But when it comes to Indian companies, we're, we're going gung-ho ahead and providing them with the kind of technology that we complain about China receiving. So it's totally hypocritical. <laughs> it does kind of appear that way. Hypocrisy has been reigning for a long time in so many areas. I mean, okay, Russia intervened in our election in 2016, like the U.S. has never done that anywhere in the world. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yes, well, hypocrisy is part of all of this. Yes. For sure. Well, many, in many respects. uh, Uh, For example, when I was talking before about how uh, the U.S. condemns Chinese government subsidies to Chinese tech firms in in advanced technologies, but there's turn we, we say nothing about all the money that def- the Department of Defense is pouring into American tech firms for doing exactly the same thing yeah well it goes on and on and on and I'm, I'm reminded I'm showing my age here of back when the the Soviets developed a nuclear bomb in the early 50s uh, we in the United States assumed they couldn't have done it on their own they must have stolen it from us and Trump and others have accused Chinese firms of stealing American technology through cyber theft, provoking widespread outrage in this country. Is there significant cyber espionage, or might it be yet another in a long line 
of insistence that the only way China, like Russia in the early 50s, could catch up with technological advances is to steal from their superiors, in other words, us. I, I, I think this is a... I mean, you just take out the word China. This is historically the way rising powers acquire the know-how to compete with dominant powers. Uh, the U.S. did it when it was a a nascent republic. Uh, we stole uh, technology true. from Britain yes. and, and, and other European countries, but mainly Britain, to in the early stages of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, Japan, in its early days, stole technology from the West. This is how a a rising country acquires essential technology to advance. Uh, So I'm sure China has engaged in this kind of behavior. Um, the question is, you know, what do you do about it? And mm-hmm. uh, and I I think the U.S. is right to establish protections uh, to prevent China from acquiring access to uh, vital technological secrets, and we do. No, that's good. Yeah, I mean, it is cyber warfare. We got to do what we what we got to do. In the us against them department, you note that. Quote, this is a two-sided war in which the U.S. is conducting its own assaults. You say the United States will impose uh, swift and costly consequences on foreign governments, criminals, and other actors who undertake significant malicious cyber activities. The 2017 uh, National Security Strategy affirmed, what what is the purpose? Is this just nationalistic bluster, or, or is it more realistic? I think what the national security strategy is saying is that, uh, first of all, the, the, the essence of that is that we moved into a new era that the defining theme of the past 15 years or so was the global war on terror. That was the dominant theme of the past 15 years or so. As ever since September 11th, 2001, uh, the military and the national security state has been focused on defeating international terrorism. And it's not like that war has stopped. It's right. still going on as, as before. But what the new national security strategy says is that is no longer our primary focus. Our primary focus is the challenge posed by great powers, and notably Russia and China, and their growing threat to America and its interests, and that this is a different kind of threat than the one posed by international terrorism. It's one that has to be faced, um, posed by different means. Including a expansion of our military capabilities, including our nu- our nuclear capabilities and our technological capabilities. So it's a entirely new conception of of the world and and what are the dominant forces shaping that world. Yeah, and how is dominance uh, imposed? It's uh, yeah, it sure is different. We got to catch up with that. And the 
we're not yeah it, it it's a competition and we're not losing it doesn't seem uh, but I, I guess to, you know, try to figure out if, if it's going to fit in some old, you know, we have to dominate them mold, uh, you know, is, is kind of a big question, too. Well, the, the essence is that, uh, you know, if you read it carefully, what they say is that while, and this is the view of the elite consensus in Washington, um, that while we were focused on, or you could say obsessed with, the global war on terror, we did not pay adequate attention to the rise of China and the and the uh, uh. the the re rise of Russia or whatever you want to call it. That our attention was diverted to these other engagements, which put in parentheses, you know, because they wouldn't say this out loud. But in fact. Uh, never threaten America's vital security interests. ISIS is a nasty, evil, bad yeah. uh, inst- uh, organization, and it does nasty things. But let's face it, they're never going to bring down Amer- the American empire. Um, but we were obsessed with this for the past 15, 20 years, Al-Qaeda and ISIS, and devoted all of our to fighting them. Uh, meanwhile, uh, China was, was uh, wh- while we were obsessed with ISIS and Al-Qaeda, was putting all their money into acquiring a modern military. And Russia was yeah. taking the time to rebuild its military, which had disintegrated after the fall of the Soviet Union, so that our lead... Our um, dominance. Our uh, uh, our net advantage over those countries had narrowed, and this is in, in, unallowable yeah. from the point of view of of the American elites. We can't allow that advantage to narrow. So now we have to pump trillions of dollars into the U.S. military to ensure that the U.S. military advantage over Russia and China expands again, hmm. whatever cost to the American economy and the American people. And they have a name for this strategy. It's called overmatch. Overmatch. We can't match them. We can't allow them to match us. We have to overmatch them. That is the defining, driving uh, force in U.S. military policy today to widen that gap between Russia and China on one hand and the United States on the other at every co- at any cost. Wow, you know, I <laughs> maybe I'm too naive here, but it's sort of the the term overmatch and how you describe it, it makes me think of like two drunk guys fighting each other. What they have to overmatch each other, and it ends up kind of messy. Like really? Yeah, well, um, you know, I've written about this for The Nation magazine, where I'm the defense correspondent, and listeners could go to thenation.com and find this. Uh, this is the term that the Pentagon uses to defend its, its request for hundreds of billions of dollars in new weapons this year. It's overmatch. Wow. God forbid that we have an equal... Uh, 
uh, arrival on equal terms. We can't allow that, they say. They it's say. not me speaking. That's what they oh, say. We cannot have equal an equal match I in, just, the, in the ring. I, I, That's not to be permitted. I, I don't like to match w- them. I don't like to watch boxing matches, I have to say. And I, oh, I, I don't either. <laughs> of course. I, or I, any, any competition. Well, competition can be okay. It's just, you know, when it gets violent. And, no, no fair fights. No fair uh, fights. And by the way, yeah. they say, uh, the, they, the Pentagon says, we're not going to have fair fights. There will be no fair fights. Wow. Okay, no fair fights. There we go. And I, I was going to ask, and I will anyway, what the heck? I, it, it's, you know, that, uh, as you mentioned, in Africa, there's, you know, the, there's a lot of debt that's being uh, built up in, in Africa in places like Uganda. And I, I, there, it, there's concern there. Is, the, is it not possible that, uh, that we could, I mean, instead of competing, is it impossible that we, I mean, this may sound uh, heretical, uh, to work with them in Africa, places like Africa? Would that make no sense at all? Is that just, you know, way out of the box? This is something that people have talked about in the past. And, you know, there actually are occasions in which the U.S. and China have cooperated and can cooperate. Um, and there's certainly no reason why they c- couldn't. Right. But in this current environment, it's very difficult to imagine that. Yeah, that's true. Well, you know, as as we mentioned before about the the former dominance of, of the oceans, Britannia used to rule the waves around the planet those days, as we mentioned, and long gone. Uh, and, and China certainly has ambitions in the Western Pacific. The U.S. military is there as well and occasionally gets into little scuffles with them. What are we doing? What are they doing? Is there a danger of perhaps an unintentional shooting war? Is that danger increasing? Please talk about this aspect of the rivalry. Well, I, I did uh, mention this earlier, that uh, the U.S. and China are constantly uh, uh, muscle-flexing yes. each other in the South China Sea. Uh, the The Chinese have militarized these islands they've created by dredging sand from the ocean's bottom and dumping them on atolls and little outcroppings to make them big enough to hold a military base. And the U.S. says this is illegitimate, and we send our destroyers right against those places to show that we could destroy them anytime we want. The Chinese send out their ships, and they sometimes come almost within range of collision. That's happened several times. And it wouldn't take much more for a collision to occur. Then what are you going to do? Right. Then a a war could break out. Mm -hmm. Lovely. Uh, If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We are Keeping Democracy Alive. That's the name of the show. Our guest today is uh, the Nation Defense Writer. Uh, five college professor emeritus of peace and world security at Hampshire College, uh, Michael Clare. And we're talking about an article he's written called War with China, It's Already Underway. This strikes me as counterproductive thinking. You write that, in other words, there can never be 
parity between the two countries. The only acceptable status for China is as a distinctly lesser power, end of quote. As you observe historically, as a prevailing power seeking to retain its dominantness status and a rising power seeking to overcome its subordinate one has almost always resulted in conventional conflict. Uh, does that not inevitably lead to conflict for domination? Is it inevitable? This is, I think this is probably, along with climate change, uh, the biggest question of the 21st century. And I think we should all be very closely thinking about this. Um, historically, uh, the rise of a powerful challenger to a dominant status quo power has led to war. Not always. There have been cases when it hasn't, but most cases it has. The rise of Germany uh, led to two world wars, World, world War One and World War Two. The rise of the Soviet Union after World War Two led to a Cold War that almost led to nuclear annihilation. True. Fortunately, that didn't happen, but it certainly led to a lot of proxy wars around the world. And also drained uh, our economies. Fortunately, none of those provoked a nuclear conflict between the two superpowers. So... This situation is this equation of a rising power and a and a existing dominant power is always fraught with great danger, cool. and the the situation today with a rising China and a dominant U.S. is one that we have to watch very closely. I think this is the biggest challenge along with climate change, facing American leaders in this century. And I don't have a lot of confidence right now in America's current leaders and their ability to manage this problem. And I hope President that... Obama understood the seriousness of the problem, and he made an effort to try to find a way to navigate this problem, this challenge, in, in his meetings with Chinese leaders. And I think other American presidents uh, have have grasped the nature of, of this challenge. I don't think that the current administration understands how precarious uh, th this equation is and, and could lead us into catastrophe. So I, I, I think this is the most difficult challenge for American policymakers. Yeah, it certainly does seem to be. And, and so far, the uh, two dozen or so Democratic candidates haven't been talking much about foreign policy. I sure hope they start doing it fairly soon. I wonder. You don't get the sense, do you, that <laughs> they're aware of of uh, of, of of this? Um, no. Of, of the seriousness of this of this matter. Well, I know that uh, Bernie Sanders has a, a new foreign policy advisor, and uh, he has been written about in The Nation magazine as well, and I uh, have some, some degree of hopes for that. One of our good presidents, Eisenhower, in his chance for, peach, bleh, chance for Peace speech, said, Every gun that is made, every warship launched, every rocket fired signifies in the final sense a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, those who are cold and are not clothed. 
You write that this new brand of war will also ensure that already sky-high defense expenditures will continue to rise, diverting funds from the vital needs like education, health, infrastructure, and the environment. To me, I mean, this is an issue. What is national security? What investment is going to lead to real national security? Uh, I I just, uh, and and as you end your article, perhaps the greatest victim of this ongoing conflict will be planet Earth itself and all the creatures, humans included, who inhabit it. As a citizen of the planet, are we powerless to do anything about it? Is it too late? What can we do, Professor Clear? A big question. Yeah, well. Uh, well, I just said that the biggest issue facing American, the two biggest issues facing American policymakers are climate and the rise of China. And we need sane, thoughtful leaders to manage both. So it's very clear. And I, I think most American people understand, well, not most, but right. many <laughs> understand this the, the importance of that, and uh, therefore, therefore we have to make sure that we have leaders who are competent and thoughtful to do this. And so we, it's a matter of making, you know, educating our leaders, yeah. our existing leaders, in every way we can, which is, you know, communicating with our existing yes. leaders in Washington yes. and seeking to elect new leaders who are more attuned to the necessity of taking a sane approach to, to the climate and to China. Yeah. It's very clear. Prioritizing. Well, if people want to read more of, of your work, there's always Tom Dispatch, which I recommend, and The Nation. I don't know if you have any other uh, electronic uh, website kind of things. <laughs> Those are the best, TomDispatch.com and TheNation.com. Thank you so much. I, I hope we can uh, learn and do better and build up some real national security. Thanks so much, Professor Clare. My pleasure. I hope uh, this has been informative. Very much. Thank you. Thank you. Somebody's bound to lead you. That man got a smile on his face. I'm the Bible. Let me tell you about a man I knew. Broke the death and the breath of China On a horse that he grew himself From the bark of a tree on mainland China And he had a time Yeah, he had the time of his life in China He carried strife and harmony To all the people on the mainland Yes, he I'd rather be here than yesterday 